Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and glad to have you on the journey. Took a trip not long ago, went to the Super Bowl. A couple days before the big game, I'm walking around the Mall of America in Minneapolis. They have a huge media contingent, call it Radio Row. A lot of athletes come by to be interviewed. And as I look around, I see an old, familiar face. Dr. Oz! It had been years since I'd seen Dr. Oz. I go way back with him. This is long before his television show. I used to write magazine stories with him for Esquire. How you doing? Great. What are you up to? And I tell him that I just started a podcast. Fantastic, he said. Turns out I'm going to New York. I say, you going back to New York? Yeah, he said. I said, would you like to come on the podcast? Wonderful, he says. And so you're about to hear Dr. Oz on the podcast. But as I left Minnesota and headed to New York, I started to think back on some of the times we spent together, and there was this one great adventure that we had. It goes back to 2004, and this adventure started at a house party. I wasn't there, but it was a house party like a lot of other house parties. I got barbecue, grilled vegetables, some wine, and Oz is there. He strikes up a conversation with Eric. Repair. Eric is the chef of the four-star French seafood restaurant in Midtown Manhattan called La Bernadin. La Bernadin is an amazing place. It takes food to another level. I mean, every time you take a bite, it's an experience. The best way I could describe it is I once took my middle daughter Kayla there when she was very young. And she buttered her bread, brought it up to her mouth. Her eyes sparkled, and she said, Dad, the butter! Everything you taste there is beyond what you're expecting. And so we're talking about excellence. At least Oz and Eric were talking about excellence, because what they both do requires excellence at the highest level. Now, on the surface, they're polar opposites. I mean, the chef clogs up the arteries. Dr. Oz's job is to keep them running smooth. But they start looking for comparisons in their work. At first, it's absurd. I mean, how can you compare life and death with an indulgent meal? But they like each other's sense of humor. When somebody's not good in my profession, Dr. Oz tells Eric, he's called a butcher. When somebody is not good in mind, Chef Eric replies, he's called a shoemaker. So they start looking at shared fundamentals, dexterity of hand and blade, organization, leadership, even interviewing skills. And they decide to do a little experiment, to trade places. Oz will do Eric's job in the kitchen, and Eric will, well, no, he's not going to do heart surgery on a human, but he'll watch Dr. Oz do surgery. And then the next day, he'll have to operate on a pig's heart. He's going to have to learn how to hold the scissors differently, tips of the thumb and ring finger into two holes. He's going to have to put in sutures, the full deal. So they make this arrangement. And then I get a call from Dr. Oz. Hey, Cal, you want to come along? You can write a magazine story about it. I check in with Esquire. Great, we're all in. Next thing you know, we're all in scrubs in the operating room, right over a guy whose chest has just been sawed open and clamped back at the ribs. This guy's body is hooked up to machines to keep his brain sleeping and his blood flowing. His head is angled back in a way that makes it disappear from view. It's almost like he was a car with an open hood. 
Dr. Oz is standing over him like a tour guide at the head of a trolley, telling us all about the heart and how this patient needs a new aortic valve. And they're going to use a pig's valve to replace his. So Dr. Oz starts the surgery. Everything's going along fine. And he's showing Eric what he needs to do. And then, suddenly, Oz is starting to ask for tools the nurse isn't anticipating. And she can't get them to him fast enough. There's this, come on, come on, in the tone of his voice. And this mushroom of tension comes off the table. I don't have any idea what's going on. Eric has no idea what's going on. But we know something's wrong. We're looking at each other, wondering, what's happening? Well, the aorta has cracked like an eggshell into tiny pieces. And this guy is not looking like a car with an open hood any longer. I'm thinking of his daughter in the waiting room. And slowly, very slowly, we watch Oz pushing down this mushroom of tension. He's super gluing this aorta back together. And a while later, when the operation ends, it's as if Oz had never touched it. Everything is working smoothly. But then, and this is the part that I'll never forget, we go out in the waiting room to watch Dr. Oz tell the guy's daughter what happened. He does so in a way that's very reassuring, but he also explains exactly what happened. When she realizes that her dad's okay, she wants to reach out and just give Dr. Oz a huge hug. We can all see this. And this amazing moment happens. It's as if a transparent wall shot up right in front of Dr. Oz that she couldn't get past. He wouldn't let her in, wouldn't let the hug in. Eric and I are looking at each other. What just happened? We didn't understand. Well... Dr. Oz finished explaining what he needed to to this patient's daughter. And then we walked off with him. And both Eric and I were fascinated. We wanted to know, why wouldn't you let her hug you? And Dr. Oz said, can't do that. Can't celebrate. They won their game. But I may be going into the second game of a doubleheader. I can't get up too high. Can't get down too low. Because if I start to believe I control the life of the patient, then it's going to be my fault if that patient dies. Eric and I are looking at each other, and we're understanding excellence in a way that neither of us had ever understood it before. Well, that night, we go to the kitchen at La Bernadette. And I'll never forget this. I'm just picking out the highlights here. But they're preparing the meals, and Oz has got to cut an onion. And Eric is showing him how to cut the onion. He's got the chef knife out, and he's chopping this onion with the blade about an eighth of an inch from his fingers. So fast, it looks like he's shuffling cards in Vegas. And now it's Oz's turn. Oz has got to cut the onion. And Eric says to him, you must learn to zinc like an onion. Here's Oz. He's got degrees from Harvard. Turns to me and says, you know, I've never thought like an onion before. So he picks up this chef knife and it's an eighth of an inch from his fingers. And I'm wondering, oh man, if he starts to slice and dice like a dealer in Vegas, he may cut his fingertips. 
But Dr. Oz is moving really smoothly with that knife. And he's chopping just the way he should be. Wasn't as fast as Eric, but he had it down with precision. We walk over to the ovens. And Eric wants to introduce Oz to the heat in the kitchen. I'll never forget, he opens the door and 500 degrees blasts into Dr. Oz's face. And he understands the heat in the kitchen. And then Oz goes to the pass. This is where he's going to have to take orders from the waiters and shout them out to the cooks who are arranged behind him in this military formation. So it's like this, like scallops, bouillabaisse, chowder, fire. And then you hear the chefs in the back, wee chef. Well, the thing that you don't realize is if these orders aren't completed within 20 seconds of the time necessary, they got to be done again. And the whole meal is predicated on precise timing. Dr. Oz and I were learning a little about timing in that kitchen. At the end of the experience, Dr. Oz and Chef Eric had even invented a new meal, a pan-roasted stuffed veal heart. And the timing was perfect because that night, Anthony Bourdain came in and they were able to serve it to him. Now, this was years before Anthony Bourdain became a television star. And as I tell the story, it makes me realize how we'd all evolved over time. Dr. Oz had started out as a heart surgeon and he came up with inventions to help a lot of surgeons. Then he taught and he wrote best-selling books, and he started a magazine, and a television show has now reached 1,500 episodes. Dr. Oz has always been a guide to me in the area of reinvention. And here I was, now in front of a microphone doing a podcast. I had completely reinvented myself. So I thought it would be a really good time to talk with him about reinvention. The world is changing so quickly. Everybody should be thinking about ways they might be able to get more out of their lives. So we're going to get right to it. So it's the perfect time to talk about my sponsors. Because in a way... My sponsors are all about making changes for the better. Does your company need to make a hire? Would be great if the person you brought in could lift your company to new heights. That's why it's smart to turn to ZipRecruiter. You write out your job description, and with a single click, you'll have qualified candidates within 24 hours. Go to ZipRecruiter.com Fussman F-U-S-S-M-A-N, for a free trial. And you'll see what I mean. Talk about making changes for the better. That could be the dictionary definition of Squarespace. Because when you create a website on Squarespace, you have a chance to show the world who you are or what your business is about in a vibrant new way. Go to squarespace.com and enter the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, to get 10% off on a new website or domain name. The simple act of envisioning yourself through a Squarespace website will enhance your curiosity and your creativity. So go to squarespace.com right now. Well, you might want to wait to the end of the podcast. Go then. Welcome to Big Questions. An old pal of mine who I once saw right before my eyes saved somebody's life. Dr. Mehmet Ah. 
Ding, 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 ding. I'm here, ready for the battle with Cal Fossman, who I've known for so many years. I enjoy every aspect of him. Find him in the most unique places, but always the place you want to be and always next to him. So, Cal, thank you for having me on. Oh, well, this is a delight. 1,500 episodes of your show, and I'm, it's nine seasons now. Who would have thought? And I knew you way before then. Well, as my mother-in-law says, I'm polluting the airwaves. (laughs) But, you know, I had Oprah on to start the show, and she said, you know, before we even started this whole event nine years ago, when I was doing the Oprah show, and I did that probably 80 times, I kept thinking to myself, you know, this is a little experiment. They don't don't usually work these science experiments where you put people on television. And Oprah, similarly, was, you know, tempered in her expectations. But uh, she launched me two years before her show was destined to end. And people didn't know that at the time, but she'd already decided. I said, why would you stop doing your show? You're top of the world. You're having a great time. She said, I am having a great time, but I'm getting tired. And you know, she said, you'll see what it's like after about seven years. And Ooh. so seven years in, and she's right. You, you start to realize you have to reinvent yourself and the show. And the real secret to relationships, to creativity, to most of the things that I've tried to do in my life is to continue to reinvent myself. And now nine years in, I feel like a newbie. I'm doing different kinds of programs, doing a lot more true crime, forensics. Uh, what would you do? Uh, what was wrong in the mind of this person that they did that? Shows that get more into the deeper medical psychology uh, of the problems we face as, as humans. And there's a rich treasure trove of ideas to explore there. And for the first seven years of my show, I spent most of the time just getting the basics of how your body worked. So moving from the body to the mind has become a natural transition for me and really engaged me, but I think also the audience because we're doing very well this year when it comes to things like ratings and, you know, the aspects of the show that have to work in order for you to be on the air. This is exactly what I came to talk to you about, reinvention, because I never thought I'd see myself in front of a microphone. Yeah, one of the best writers I know, and I'm not patronizing you, I wouldn't do this podcast with a brand new podcaster (laughs) if it wasn't for the fact that I respect your competence and expertise in another area. But I am curious about what drove you to a podcast, because you have the gift, I mean, you have the gift of the gab too, you can talk, I've spent a lot of time, but, but, but what really always impressed me was you could take a long meandering conversation and reduce it down to a couple pages of just beautiful prose. And that was always the the classic line, right? If you had more time, you'd make it shorter. Right. I think Winston Churchill said that. Winston Churchill was the latest of the many famous people. (laughs) Oliver (laughs) Wilde. There's many people who said it. I've learned. I thought it was only Winston Churchill. All the good quotes I thought were Churchill. That was You're probably right. He was having he's having dinner with the uh, a woman he did not like much, and she she was badgering him. And he was badgering her back, and she looked at him and she said, "Winston, if I was married to you, I would poison you." And he looked back at her and said, "Did he asked you if I was married to you? I'd take it." <laughs> <laughs> oh. He reinvented himself. Winston Man, Churchill's a man right. who was the undersecretary of the Navy in the First World War for the Great. A British Navy, most powerful Navy in the world, and single-handedly led them into Gallipoli, <laughs> the biggest catastrophe of the empire in the war, sacrificed uncountable numbers of New Zealanders, Australians, and British uh, soldiers, fought against my grandfather, because my f- grandfather fought for the, the Ottomans. And uh, Richard, Rupert Mur- Murdoch was just, a, I really, no matter what you think about him in general, he, he really is a very thoughtful, soulful individual. His father was the uh, commentator, the journalist covering Gallipoli and went to the, the, the leadership of the British army afterwards and said, this, all this bad stuff was happening where, you know, the, the, and the enlisted men were being thrown in these trenches against machine fire and, uh, you know, the officers were back in the boat uh, sipping tea. And it led to a, a, a meaningful change in how the war was conducted. But Winston Churchill, after that catastrophe, was exiled, ostracized as you know, but for your listeners, and reinvented himself completely at a time when Britain needed him, the Battle of Britain, you know, when he came back and said that uh, that we will never, never, never give up. (laughs) Very good. Never surrender. And your thoughts on reinvention are going to come in handy to a lot of people, I feel. It is a crazy time. I just was able to take a transcript, which I used to do manually myself, if it was a two-hour interview, it might take me all day, maybe longer. Uh, 
I was able to put it in the computer. I got it back in less than four minutes. Oh, gosh. I, it was a three hours. It was three hours. I paid like $17. It's no, unbelievable. Did someone type it or the machine did it? The machine did it. That's unbelievable. And we also have in 29 states, the job most employed is driver. Yeah. Five or six years. Whoosh, People are going to have to reinvent themselves. And you have been a guy who has done this at every step of the way. You've been like a guide to me, just watching you. <laughs> Peripatetic. <laughs> no, I, I wanted to go back to the beginning and, and see the steps you were making and then the leaps and, and how you were in a certain place and decided, okay, now it's time to go to the next level. You know, a lot of it comes down to a slightly different question, which is related, which is how do you manage your time? And for me, it's it's actually never been about time management. It's about energy management. When I do things that give me chi, give me energy, I can do them forever. And by the way, I'm not alone. If you're listening right now, you're the same. If you're enjoying this podcast, it's not homework to you. If you enjoy watching a game on the weekend, it's not work, right? That's pleasure. But it's also time management, right? You can't do it all the time. So if you turned your work into play, then you'd want to do more of it. And I never get up in the morning and resent having to, to do the things I do going to work. I recognize that there's chores. We all have issues that, with our jobs that aren't perfect. But the, bless, the blissful payoff is so great. It's so far outweighs the penalties of the, the homework I've got to do to, to, to accomplish those blissful moments, that the trade-off is always great. But sometimes the job changes or you change. And that equation no longer works. And the the tedious part of the job becomes more dominant. So I've decided that when that happens, I'm going to just change my job. I will just continue to reinvent myself, recreate myself. That, by the way, is not just true for jobs. It's true for all the other relationships you have. You know, my wife, Lisa, who I, you know, I've been in love with, best thing I ever did was marrying her. I hope she feels that way, but I'm not sure sometimes. Because I, I, I think so. I hope she doesn't hear this, but in my house, the prosecution never rests. <laughs> I'm continually under indictment. <laughs> but yeah, but, I, but I, I married her when I was a very different person. And I, when I did marry her, she was exactly the person I wanted to marry. And then she began to change. And Lisa didn't, marry the man she wanted to end up with. She married the man she thought she could change into the man she wanted to end up with. Oh, that's Yeah, and I didn't, I didn't really want to change. Problematic. Yeah. And it turns out that's sort of the norm. Women marry the man they think he'll become. Men marry the women that they just, they like. They, she's they right there. Want, they don't want to They don't change. want her to change. And so from day one, you're actually heading in different directions. And that tension continues to build and build. Of course, you have chemical handcuffs on, right? Oxytocin, prolactin, you know, pitocin, all these hormones that bond you together. You know, prairie dogs are monogamous and uh, very strongly monogamous and uh, are linked for life. And they have incredibly high levels of pitocin. And some of these hormones that, you know, oxytocin, we never knew these hormones were all that critical, but it's become pretty clear that we really are bonded together. Now, after seven years, which is about enough time for the couple of kids to grow big enough that, the, you know, you, they could manage with, even if the, your parents aren't there, their parents aren't there, the chemical, chemical handouts come off. So not surprisingly, around seven to 10 years, people start getting separated unless they reinvent their, their relationships. So if the husband you know, this spouse, because it's not a husband and wife, it's, you know, whoever the loving couple is, if the, if the spouses reinvent themselves and recognize that their spouses are also, they meet each other again. So I've been married to four women. They all have the same social security number, but they, <laughs> they change. He changes. Wow. She was a, first she was a mom, then she was an actress, then she became a writer, then a producer. You know, I was a student basically for the first seven years of our marriage because, you know, to go through medical school and residency takes at least that long. Then I was an attending surgeon, which is like being a fighter pilot. You're never home. It's like a deployed fighter pilot. You know, you're, you're, you're working all the time. Then I became a, and a professor and attending, but now I'm a bit more uh, supervisory, working hard, but your ego grows and maybe your skills don't. But, you know, then, you, then I became a TV person because I really liked the idea. And many of those changes... Of the idea of what I could do as a TV host. Many of the, uh, those changes happened because Lisa recognized that I wasn't happy in my role. Not because the job had changed, but because I had, and I needed to do different things. As an example, 
when I was top of the world doing the most heart surgery in New York and knocking them down and having a good time and lifting work, them up, yeah, <laughs> not lifting them up, not knocking them down, knocking them down first, then you lift them up after, I saw the, after you the lift surgery. Them up. Right? <laughs> uh, but I began to recognize that that I was getting frustrated that so much of what I was doing in the operating room could have been avoided if people just had a little bit of insight into the preventive tactics that we know work, like eating differently. Uh, uh, getting more activity into our day-to-day life. Cigarettes are an obvious one, but there are many others, how they cope with stress. And sometimes they were doing things they thought were healthy that weren't. So Lisa very clearly said, you know what, if you don't like how it is, go fix it. You know, people out there, America's not getting the message about health because you're not giving it to them. And who better than you, specifically you, not just medicine, but you going out there and changing that equation. So thanks to Lisa, I actually started working with Oprah. Uh, Oprah taught me a lot about how to talk to people about health because a doctor has to be an educator. The word doctore comes from the Latin for teacher. So if I'm a teacher, I gotta have pupils who wanna learn, but I've gotta bring a good class to them. And once I finished my you know, Oprah University training, I was ready to graduate onto my own show, which is frankly why I'm still on the air because the vast majority of these shows don't work in part because the hosts weren't groomed the right way. They didn't really have a very clear focus on what lane they were going to be in, what need were they saving and solving for. Because I'm called a host, but I'm actually a guest in people's homes, right? I mean, you got to invite me in. You got to invite my people with me. You got to write, I got to have good messages for you. I can't go in there and just blister, bluster about how my celebrity friends are doing such great things. They don't care. If you're living in Des Moines, Iowa, you need help right? Or Cincinnati, Ohio, or Atlanta, Georgia. You want people to come into your home and give you insights, lighten your load. And so television literally should do that, right? It brings light into your home, but it should lighten your load by making it enjoyable. And if you do it right, it could enlighten you, which is the extra twist that I add to it. What did Oprah teach you about connection? We do not change what we do based on what we know. We change what we do based on how we feel. And they frankly don't care uh, how much you know unless they understand how much you care. Right? You got to care before they'll But you, al- you always cared. I know, but I've got to actually make that super clear. And the content you bring to them tells that story. If I go up there and you know, bash through hundreds of facts about how your colon works and it's not enjoyable, I could care more. Because that's sort of selfish of me to do. I'm showing off about how much I know about the colon. Right. I've, I've also got to be responsive to where your needs are and respectful to your insights because people are sharp. They get it. But you got to give it to them in a way that's accessible. Oprah would stop me in the middle of a show, right in the middle. And she says, you know what? I didn't really understand what you said. And if I didn't understand it, I, I can guarantee they, pointing at the cameras, didn't get it. And that was always a nice wake-up call. She would keep me real. And there were times when I'd be so proud of what I figured out, I was going to just go on that path. Like you're off on a safari in Africa, and people don't (laughs) want to go there with you sometimes. They would have to focus on their relationships. What's going down now? What's causing pain in their lives? How come no one pays attention to them? How come no one respects them? Who's Who's talked to them in ways that have made them feel demeaned? And how do you get them past that so they don't believe that BS anymore? Because you're worth it no matter who you are. I couldn't have picked a better episode to tell you why I am so proud to be sponsored by ZipRecruiter. The reason you go to ZipRecruiter is precisely to take your company to higher ground. Your company has a chance to find somebody who can lift it in a way you couldn't even have anticipated. The beauty of ZipRecruiter is... It can happen fast. All you got to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com, type in your job description, and within 24 hours, you will have qualified candidates. Get this. You can even make that click. Go to lunch and come back to the office and find qualified candidates. So go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and get a free trial. Save time and improve yourself and your business with a single click. I've spoken with people whose lives have been changed by ZipRecruiter. 
That's why I tell anybody who's looking to hire to head straight to ZipRecruiter. Reinvention is all about curiosity. So how does that apply to Squarespace? Well, when you decide to frame yourself through a new or redesigned website, you have to ask yourself how you want the world to see you. What photos would you choose? What messages would you want to get across? What's the best way to get people to see all the hard work you're putting into your business? Squarespace is going to allow you to look at yourself in a new way. And then it's going to allow you to show the world who you are and what your business is about in the most unique and creative way. Just go to squarespace.com and look at examples of all the beautiful websites that have been created. Then type in the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and get 10% off a new website or domain name. This could change your life. I remember you told me a story, and I, I love this story. Uh, and it really is a story of transformation. And it's when you are in the operating room. And I think you were pretty early because it was like one heart surgery after the next, after the next. And there was a guy from upstate New York. He was plowing snow. And in the middle of plowing snow, he had a heart attack. And they got to him and they helicoptered or jetted him down to where you were. And I don't know if you want me to tell the rest of the story or if you want to continue. I'm so impressed you remember this. Go ahead. And, 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 and so basically he comes in dead. And the way you described it to me, like you threw your whole life, everything you knew, you, you put into this guy and he survives. And the line that I remember you telling me was that you nearly twisted your arm out of shape, patting yourself on the back yeah, I, when, when you go home that night. Yeah, I, I, I gave myself a rotator cuff injury. <laughs> I was so proud of myself. <laughs> you come back. He, he's up. And here you are. You're so happy. And he looks at you and basically says, who gave you permission to keep me alive? This is a very religious guy. God decided for me to die. Who are you to tell me that I should be alive, to tell God that I should be alive? And then he starts ripping off the wires and everything around him. And like you're, you don't know what to do. And you're just trying to get him to a place where the wires can be put back and he can be neutralized. And then you realize, you know, there's real, what can I do for him? And you make that swing to, you know what? I really can help him. But maybe his pastor or his minister can. You call up the minister. He comes down, talks to the patient, and gets him to realize, well, maybe it was God's will for you to be working on him and keep him alive. If I could amplify, because this, this story, I, I, I'm really proud of you. I'm very flattered and amazed you remember it in that detail. But it was a very important case for me. You know, you're, the cases that go well don't change or impact on you as much as the ones that don't go well. And we all have surgeon skeletons in our closet. And whenever I make a mistake here on the stage and or one of my colleagues here makes a mistake and they're beating themselves up, I say, you know, Normally, when I make a mistake, somebody dies. Oh. You know, it's not a big deal. We'll just do it again. <laughs> so the demonstration didn't work. The animation wasn't quite right. The guest said the wrong thing. It's okay. You know, it's television. I'm very respectful of the medium. I know how powerful it is, but nobody died. So the uh, it, just to put it in perspective, but in in my field, there there are rarely times where you're caught completely off guard. We have no expectation. And this gentleman was a good example. He had been. Plowing snow, as you mentioned, he was unconscious when he was brought to the hospital. So I had no opportunity to talk to him. And I, I instinctively knew what I needed to do, which is 
full court press, do everything you can to keep his brain alive because that's the biggest risk when their hearts failed. I put a mechanical heart pump in him and I was very proud of myself. And you know, your ego is a big part of surgery. Surgery is controlled arrogance. If you're gonna be honest about it. If you, who, who, who thinks they can take a bandsaw to someone's chest and help them? How many people take a scalpel and cut somebody and think it's good for everybody, right? You've got to be a little arrogant to think that's possible. But the operative word is controlled arrogance. <laughs> Confidence to do it. Because, you know, in your moment of need in the operating room, you do not want to be surrounded by intellectuals. You want to be surrounded by people of, of action. Know what they're doing. Just decide. to hand you the right instrument. Just do it. Right. And then you react. If it doesn't work, you, you can react to a bad... I can fix a lot of problems. I can't fix a non-action. There's nothing to do. I can't move in any direction. You're paralyzing me. And inaction is deadly in the operating room. So we moved forward quickly. We saved this guy's life. And when he confronted me with the reality that I had destroyed his meaning, that's what he was really telling me. His life was built around a very religious uh, past you know, pursuit, but he had a job. He plowed, he worked. He was a, you know, he had use. And what I had taken away from him was his manliness. And it was his wife, actually, who gave me the insight, the, the tip to call his pastor. Because when I went out to talk to her, and she was in tears, obviously, because man that she loved dearly was trying to commit suicide. Uh, she said that he's always been a man that was very focused on serving. Whether it was his job, in his church, it's soup kissing, philanthropy, and regular work. I mean, he had a, a desire to have a purpose in life. And I had taken that from him. Now he's an invalid, a cripple. That's how he saw it. And when I heard her say that, I thought, you know, I wonder what his pastor would say because people can have service and use in, other, in many, many ways. So when he came to talk to him, he began talking about the fact that maybe his purpose was to be evangelical about the meaning of life, about what it's like to leave this beautiful, bright plane of bliss we live in and fall into the chance. yeah and fall into the depth of despair, the darkness, the deep crevices of and darkness that death represents, and then come back up again, which is what he had done. And, you know, out of the abyss, back onto the plane of life, that brings you insights that might actually change people for the better. And that man became a counselor. He actually ended up working with Hell's Angels, a motorcycle. Oh, I, mean, I never didn't yeah, know that. Motorcycle. He worked with motorcycle <laughs> gang members. He was a tough guy. He could connect with them, and he could talk to them about what he had learned and thrived with his wife, by the way. Well, the, the amazing thing to me was how that allowed you to morph or, or think differently to a place where, you know, you, we may have to hit people in the mind in order to save their hearts because you could go in and do these surgeries, what, eight times a day? is, is That would be too many, right? How, yeah, how no, many could you do in a day? No, we, I would rarely do more than three. Three, but I would I would do three a day. Okay, I would go back. We'd have multiple rooms, and I would just get the patient ready. Do the shortest case first. You finish the last case at nine o'clock or ten o'clock at night, and go home and do the same thing the next day. And you don't ever get bored, and you don't ever resent it because you adore it. And the minute you begin to think that's too much, that's when you got to shift gears. Well, it seemed like there was a shift in in your mind when you understood that if we can influence somebody's mind, we can get to their heart. And then I won't, I can help more than three people a day. Yeah. I can help millions of people a day if I can get to their mind. Because if they come in and I do the surgery and then they go out and start eating pastrami sandwiches with a lot of fat in it. Which, which would happen, which well, is exactly what would happen. What have I done? You know, the, the big breakthrough is the realize, the epiphany, that if you put yourself at risk, people may not like it, but over time, you'll do what you need to do. The comfortable, safe place for me to stay was in academic medicine. I loved the people I was working with. I Columbia University, I'm still in the faculty, great institution, very proud of it. I still go and operate one day a week because I love it so much. Speaking with my colleagues and with patients and looking people in the eyes and realizing that you're there for them and they know it and they're there, for, you know, they'll be they'll be they'll show up too in life. But if you stay in that safe place and you build up little barriers to protect yourself, one day eventually you'll realize you're in a cage. And I think a lot of us do that 
even if we're not heart surgeons, right? You, we put ourselves in these nice little safe seeming cocoons, uh, but they really are ultimately cages. And you got to bust out of the cage and do what your deeper mission is. So I've always wanted to be in the change business. I like changing people. I even, find that from, even from the very start? I was when, president of my student body at med school. I was president of my class. I, was, I won the captain's award at Harvard. I was captain of my football team in high school. Uh, you know, I, I, I just like the ability to influence people because I saw they were leaving so much on the table. Now, there's an arrogance to make you think you can do all that. I, I'm respectful of that and you know, I appropriately get criticized for thinking I can make such a big difference. But the world's only been changed by people who had irrational beliefs in what they could do. <laughs> I mean, right. people who have rational beliefs do rational things and that doesn't change the world so much. Uh, so if you're in the change business and heart surgery is a pretty changing you know, uh, uh, profession for the people you take care of, then you begin to think, well, my goodness, did I change it enough? I mean, one by one by one, I can slowly take out 10,000 people and help them to do better than they would have done. But on my tombstone, I, I, maybe I have more to offer than that. And if I do, wouldn't it be shame on me if I didn't? So I began with a lot of strong mentoring. Lisa, my wife, Oprah, my, my father, and my father-in-law. You know, my mother-in-law is probably my, my harshest critic of all. Even though I love her dearly, but she, I love having her out there saying, because you know, she's I'm not I'm not I'm not hell raising enough. Oh, she wants you pushing. Yeah, my further. Mother, my mother-in-law wants me. My my, my father-in-law and mother-in-law iconic people. My father-in-law was one of the most famous heart surgeons in America on the first heart transplant team. Uh, in fact, I was playing trivial pursuit with him. Tell me if Cal, if this ever happened to you? Playing trivial pursuit with him, and I'm about to win. And the question is. This heart surgeon was named Rock Doc by Rolling Stone magazine because he was the first to play rock music in the OR, right? So he's a little older than me. He probably knows the answer to this. So you got Michael DeBakey, Ted and Cooley, and his name's in there. Oh, man. So, <laughs> and he's and he, the answer to trivia. He's the answer suit. to the question. How many people have the answer to the question <laughs> again, playing opposite you? So, so he was you know, a well-respected surgeon, but he began to realize, as I have, that much of the battle needs to be fought outside the hospital. The real battle for health is fought in your home, your kitchen, your living room, your bedroom. That's where you win the battle for health. And so he began to realize that my mother-in-law, who's, you know, grow herbs and spices, Spices in the garden had, you know, all these crazy, wacky ideas. Many of them have been proven to be true. true. <laughs> this whole belief that diet was the most fundamental driver of health, that food could fix it. The belief that when you walk into a grocery store, you're walking into a pharmacy. Uh, you know, lived on a farm, had, you know, all these weird things. That two of them together in one house didn't make sense even. Yet they made magic. Independent of my wife and her, you know, her the six siblings, they actually began to really challenge the status quo. So she's a hellraiser out there saying I should take on industry, that, you know, that, that, that a lot of what we've done to make life simpler was actually making life worse. And you know, they're not uh, Luddites. They're not a throwback. They, they, she had really insightful reasons why she believed what she believed. And many of them ended up being you know, at least defensible. And I got my, my father on the other side saying, what are you doing? Get back in the, get back in the operating room. My father was an old school surgeon, respectful of the fact that I was doing research that was innovative. You know, besides all the things I'm doing now, I mean, I, my, my real innovative career started when I began inventing devices to fix our heart valves that didn't require surgery. When I was working on mechanical heart devices, these were technologies that were revolutionizing medicine. But it was sort of the basic philosophy. Why do the same thing my father did? Can I make it better than that? I mean, wasn't the whole purpose to stand on his shoulders so I can see further? to open up a vista of opportunities to change the world even more. I mean, if I could just sort of sloppily follow what he did, well, that's not such a big deal. How did he respond to that? Seeing you stand on his shoulders and started to become an inventor. And like, at what point did it go from, hey, that's great, that's great, that hold it. How come you're not in the operating room more? He really started getting bothered when I began doing media, traditional media. Uh, he was okay with hard news, but when you start getting into talk show space where you're not just giving him the facts, ma'am, he's a dragnet kind of guy, Sergeant Friday. Okay. Give him the facts. Got it. And so when I began diver diverting my career, it began to influence his impression about it. Listen, I think- has it, has it changed over time or does no. he, st he not, still feels that 93 way? 93 years old. Just the facts, just yeah. the facts, ma'am. He, he, he's understanding that I would 
deviate from that path. But, you know, deep down inside, he doesn't see the reason for this. But listen, I remember vividly, I, I was playing football in high school. He never understood why I played sports. I should just be studying. What's the point of playing sports? You don't get graded on it, right? And I made All-State. First kid in my school of 20 years to make All-State. And, he, I, you know, it was in the paper. Like I was, you know, it's a big deal. I was 16. I wasn't even a senior, you know. And uh, he looked at it and he said, you know, what's this? And I said, Dad, I'm All-State. It's such a good deal. I mean, everyone, <laughs> everyone knows who I am. He goes, yeah, I don't understand. What's the point? And I realized that he didn't really get the life I was going to live. So I needed to be respectful of what he had taught me, which is huge. But I shouldn't believe that he knows how to live my life better than me. That's a hard lesson for a kid to get. Uh, it's a very hard lesson for a father, now that I'm a father, to, to understand from his son. Right. Because when I start to pressure my son, because I know what's best for him, obviously, right? I mean, I was there already. <laughs> the, the dad, right? I, cat's cradle, right? I, I was there already. Come on. I, I know this. Don't make that mistake. And he wants to go off and do something I don't understand. You know, my wife's got to pull me back and say, listen, you know, egghead, you know, this is exactly the argument that you had and I'm sure your father had with his father. We're supposed to go through that. It's that tug of war that's supposed to define what manhood is when you go out there and, and you realize it happens because you start arguing more. I always tell yeah. my residents that I know they're ready to graduate and be a surgeon. When they're arguing with you? they're fighting with me. When they think they know how to do the operation better than me, now they're ready to graduate. Until then, if they're going to docilely take my advice... They won't be any better than me. The point is not to train them to be the same as me. The point is to train them to be better than me so they replace me. And that's a very big part. My, our mantra at Columbia is we train surgeons to save lives. That's the mantra. So I'm not training you to copy me. I'm training you to be better than me. Does, does all this put you in a place to make your next jump? I think about it. I, I'm, I, I, I morphed the show and myself in order to keep up with what's going on in a country that's changed. The world's very different than 2007, eight, when I was planning my show and 2009 when I launched a show. And I'm having fun, it's enjoyable, but I mentioned earlier that I'm in the change business. So when the time comes when I don't feel I'm changing my audience and influencing people as I could, then I'll look at other areas. And I'm fascinated by politics, I'm fascinated by academia. I think we have the opportunity for large movements that aren't political, you know, seismic shifts in how we see life. Uh, I think we're sort of stuck in a warrior mentality sometimes when so much of the bigger battles we have to fight to be happy in life aren't being fought. Now, I have a good friend, he's become a good friend, um, who was at Google, a very senior job at Google, which means he did well, by the way. And he just quit. And I asked him why, and he's had some tragedy in his life, which I won't go into. Uh, but he says, listen, you know, my, my, my colleagues, and I know this business, and so I agree with them, believe that artificial intelligence will be able to do what we do better than us within 10 to 12 years. So if what we're doing is ugly and cheap and demeaning to our species and to the world around us, artificial intelligence will learn to do that. If what we're doing is making us happy and thoughtful and soulful and reminding us that we're like drops falling into the ocean of humanity, then artificial intelligence will be better than us at that. So what are we going to teach? It's like that old parable of the wolf, which I'm sure you've heard before, that is you're torturing this poor kid in his dreams. It's an Indian parable. Go ahead. And the, the, the son is telling the, the wise man that he's having these terrible dreams about being, you know, tortured by a wolf but then there's other animals that are saving him and and sharing him and with the wisdom with him and and lifting him and he, he asks the wise man what you know which is going to dominate which is going to win what does this dream mean and the wise man says whoever you feed that that's who will win if you feed evil then evil will win and we've been feeding evil or at least starving good for too long. And we need to flip that because as technology advances, it will accelerate and magnify what we're doing. That's about the best way I could think of ending this session. And we will hopefully pick it up down the road. I don't know how far, how many changes you'll make, but it's just beautiful to see you thriving 
constantly ascending and bringing us this wisdom. I'm blessed to be in your company, and I enjoy it always. And I look forward to many, many more deep conversations. All right. Thank you. Take care, my friend. You too. want to thank Tim Ferriss for making all this possible. Also, Lex and Alex and Luz at Midroll for putting all the pieces together. And Jay, the audio technician, who's got a great ear and some great eyes, too. want to thank Ali, who's sitting right by doing the production. And also, Kevin, the manager, for being Kevin, the manager. Thanks, and see you next week. Let's wrap up with a final word from my sponsors. You know... There's not a day that goes by that I don't mention ZipRecruiter to somebody. Could be somebody who's looking for a job or stuck in a position that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Could be someone who's asked me for a good question to ask during a job interview. Whoever you are, ZipRecruiter can change your situation. A single click will get your company qualified candidates within 24 hours. Those hires can grow your company and grow their own families. So go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and change your life for the better. Fast. And change your whole outlook by creating a new website on Squarespace. Squarespace will enable you to see yourself in the most creative new way. And when you see yourself that way, the world will see you that way. So go to squarespace.com, enter the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and get 10% off a new website or domain name. As I assemble the pieces to the new website I'm creating on Squarespace, I can just feel myself going to a better place. Simply going to squarespace.com is going to lift you up. So check it out. Squarespace. Squarespace.